Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. We're going to look at, uh, look at Ecclesiastes 5, uh, reading the first couple of uh, passages here. Um, the writer Solomon wisest of all men as they as we have known uh, giving us a sense of how to live life under the sun but not under the sun uh, life under the sun is life on earth life as we have it life in the culture life uh, operating uh, operating on the horizontal plane and and uh, if we only operate in that spectrum if we only operate Uh, mindful of the horizontal plane of the earthly mindset of life under the sun. Solomon says, I've done that. I've gone down that road. I've tried all all the options and it's meaningless. And indeed, if you and I sink our roots too deeply into uh, life under the sun, life in the horizontal plane only, it becomes very burdensome, unsatisfying, and, and very frustrating uh, to the point of, despair, of utter despair. What the, writer of, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is teaching us is how not to, is that we all must and are living under the sun in the earthly plane, but we don't, the only successful way, the only satisfying way uh, empowering way to live is to have a vertical, a vertical plane. To have the, to have a connection with Christ, with life outside the sun, beyond the sun, as it were, in order to have our, in order to have a sense of, of, uh, of power and mission within the context of the world we live. So look at this next section, as we have it in Ecclesiastes five. Follow along, and I will, uh, I will read it aloud. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they are do what they do wrong, that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow you do not fulfill it, if you do not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God... Be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. And Father, I pray that this morning you would, uh, that you would touch our hearts inform our minds, uh, rule upon our will, as it were, and uh, that, we might, that we might be more useful to you in this world 
and m more satisfied and enriched with the world that you with the, with the life that you've given us in Jesus name we pray amen <clears throat> one of the uh, one of the things that we were when we first had children um, we were we had we had several sort of uh, several sort of uh, uh, hopes when we had children. Uh, and one of those hopes was is that I, I didn't want to be the kind of parent, we didn't want to be the kind of family that once you had small children, that then you, you had that everything from three feet down got put away. You know what I'm saying? In, in terms of we didn't want to be the sort of, um, as long as they couldn't touch it, then you know, we had to put everything away that could be damaged, everything put away that they, that they might get, get into or, that, or, or, or uh, you know, uh, we didn't want to be the parents that put little little rubber bumpers on all the sharp edges, right? Um, and that's fine. <clears throat> we we weren't critiquing people who did that. It's just <clears throat> we didn't want to go to that much trouble. To be perfectly honest with you, it it flowed mostly out of my own selfish pride, my own self my own self centeredness. I like my house the way it is. I don't want it. I don't want it gummed up by my by these new these new renters that are coming in. I want to live my life the way that I have been living it, which means I've got all of my things that I have out and I have them where they are and I want them kept there and to, to enjoy and to display and I don't want to have to put rubber bumpers on all of my surfaces. It just looked, looked to me, I just didn't want that. So in order to do that, when, but yet you are bringing in new people into this process and, uh, and so... Um, you, the other thing we didn't want is to be the sort of, oh, you know, well, when you've got all kinds of stuff out, there's two ways, there's two ways to go about it in our minds when you, have chill, when you have toddlers. When you've got all the stuff out, you've got a candle on the table, you've got the, you've got the, can, you know, the, the candle, and then you've got the decorative thing, and then you've got uh, the remote control, stuff that they shouldn't be, and then sometimes glass, stuff that they shouldn't be touching because it could be dangerous in terms of they not knowing how to handle it. And so we didn't, wanna, we didn't want it to be sort of, we didn't want to run around the house with the sort of, don't touch that, don't touch that, don't touch that, don't touch that, right? Even though there is a certain practicality that you're going to have to do some of that. But we didn't want it to be, you know, don't, don't touch every new thing. We tried, to have a, we tried to have a whole thing of don't touch it if it isn't yours mentality. That's just one rule as opposed to 60. Don't touch the candle. Don't touch the glass. Don't touch, don't touch the candy that's, not, that's on the table that we didn't give you permission for. So now we're not, and as they got older and began to, began to talk, there wasn't this sort of um, assessment of do, am I allowed to touch this? Because the rule was, don't touch anything that's not yours unless you ask permission. Now, we were hoping, we were hoping part of the goal of that wasn't just to make our lives better and we could keep our stuff out and things wouldn't get touched that weren't theirs. We were also trying to create a climate of private property, you know, personal ownership. It's important for responsibility. And so when we, we were anticipating Others coming into this household, not just the first one, but we had two more, and we knew that there was going to be property issues in terms of, that's my thing, why are you touching it? And so now we have to, less disputes, whose is it? Did you get permission? Done. <laughs> to your room. 
clear and easy processes. That, you know, parenting is very much triage in these moments, right? The other thing we were hoping is that if we, if we were able to do this with our kids and instill this idea, don't touch it unless, don't touch it if it's not yours, mentality, our, our, our other uber goal was to make it better when you invited us to your house with our kids so that they weren't touching your stuff and breaking it or moving it or disturbing it in some fashion when they weren't able. Our goal was we want them to have that same rule, that same sense going into your house as when they were in our house. Don't touch anything that's not yours unless you ask. By and large, that didn't work. Well, it worked. It, it worked. I have to, I have to say, it, I, it have to, I have to say it worked less at my house than it did at yours. Which actually was kind of, that, I, I can live with that. I can live with that process. Because when you, you, know, when you go to somebody else's house, you know, you're, you're sort of like, you're a little... You're a, little, you're a little more on edge, right? When you go to somebody else's house. I mean, you know, and, and you have to, you know, even when you get to the door, you know, you knock on the door and you wait for them and, they, and, then, they come, and then they come to the door and then you're like, you know, do, do, do we wear shoes or don't we wear shoes? You know, and now do we, want to, do we wear a mask or don't we wear a mask? And, and then you wait to be offered a seat before you actually take a seat. And then you, you know, am I, you know, do I, you know, do I ask, you know, uh, do, do I ask for water? Do I wait to receive water in terms of that, you know, in terms of what we're, what's being, being offered? And there's a sense where when you go to someone else's house, you're a little more sort of uh, patient in the process, a little more... Um, humble. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying the same thing. When you go to somebody else's house, you're humble about it. When you go to God's house, same thing. And the one thing that he says, and he's trying to help, he's trying to create. Remember, the larger context here is we're living under the sun. And the, the healthier, more, more satisfying way to live under the sun in the horizontal plane in the earthly culture is to have a connection with the vertical plane, with God himself. That when I am connected deeply to, and I'm rooted deeply in him, when I'm rooted deeply in my spiritual connection to him, it's going to create a better, a better satisfying life in the horizontal plane, which is meaningless otherwise. The only thing that provides meaning is if I have a connection to him vertically. And he's saying the place, one of the principal places you and I find vertical connection, or at least a reminder of that vertical connection, a, a celebration of that, of that eternal connection is in worship, is when we go to the house of God. And, what, and, and part of what the writer is saying is when Solomon says, when you go to the house of God, First thing to remember, first thing to keep in mind, it isn't your house. It's God's house. And he actually gets into that. He goes into that a little bit more. A little bit more. He says, um, uh, what is it in verse 2, the middle of verse 2? God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Basically what he's saying is God's eternal. You're, he's infinite. You're finite. He's He's transcendent. You are imminent. You, 
you, he is eternal, you are earthly. When we go into God's house or when we have this vertical connection with him, when we, when we have a relationship with him, part of it is to understand our place in the relationship. He is God. We are his people. We are his children. Now, the thing about that is, is that the writer here is to have a relationship with God, to have a connection with him, is a very multifaceted, multi-leveled uh, complicated, complex thing. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of different aspects. And and because he calls us, God calls us his friends. God calls us his children. God calls us his lover. He calls us his bride. There are many things of great imminent, intimate contact and uh, 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 ways that he calls us uh, and, and ways that he refers to us that reflect our intimacy and our and presumably our the casualness of those relationships. I treat my wife differently than I might treat someone else. I treat my children differently because of the nature of that relationship. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes is bringing us another layer to that multifaceted relationship that God's people have with his children is that we are, yes, his children, yes, his bride, yes, his friend, but we are, we are people that have been made by him. We are not him. And his infinity, his, his, his infinite being his transcendent power and, and person, we, we, are, we are no match. We are no, we are, it is far beyond our grasping. And the proper, the proper starting place for any connection with God, the proper starting place is to be awestruck. The proper foundation for any other layer. The proper foundation for any other layer that we place on top. He's going to place on top, the, the, on top of that layer the layers of intimacy and the layers of connection and the layers of comfort and, and familiarity. Absolutely those are. But at, at the root of it, at the, at the root of it is an awestruck transcendence that we cannot bridge. It is, an, it is a... A, a praiseworthy distance, an awe-inspiring fear. Fear. That's what he, he's alluding to in the end. Therefore, stand in awe of God. What it's, uh, other translators will translate that word, awe, as fear. That the ultimate Ultimately, at the base, we ought to have an awestruck fear, not fear dread, not a fear of condemnation because all that's been taken away, not a fear that God might, uh, that, that, that might, that God might give us what our sins deserve because the cross has taken all that away, but a fear of awesomeness, a fear of, of being in the presence of a holy, transcendent, powerful, distant God who should have, by all rights, who should, by all rights, have nothing to do with you. 
or me. I've mentioned half a dozen times or more in a sermon or two that if I were God, and you should be so grateful I am not, if I were God and I made, and I made Adam and Eve and they messed up on day seven or whatever day it was, when I create them, I give them everything, I promise to provide everything, and then they would rather be God than have me as their God, and they mess it all up and they break the whole process, I would have erased everything and started again. It's easier. Just erase it. Because I can and because that's my position. And that, but, but the nature of God's holiness, the nature of his transcendence, wasn't to erase and start again, but was to allow it to continue and redeem it. Heal it. Resurrect it from the dead that Adam and Eve brought into the world. And in the grand scheme of history and a biblical time and space, that plan is far greater than the eraser plan that I could have come up with because, and of course, I'm, I'm imagining these things out of my own sinful, broken human experience, of course. But God in his holy transcendence understands that redemption was greater than recreation. To restore what was broken is far more loving, far more engaging than to simply eradicate it and start over. And praise God, that's what he did. That's, that's the process. And we see the love of that sort of thing. What, but what, but the, so, so the basis, but the, but the power and the, and the ability and the, and the grandness of the character of God, the holiness, the distance that he is and of his being and of his in, uh, infinite power and glory is far beyond us, which should put us in a position at the very base of that relationship. The foundation is to say, I'm in a place, when I go to the house of God, I'm in a place I should not be. A place of awestruck fear. The rest of Scripture, very many other places of Scripture, and I, I, I need to keep highlighting this, is that it does layer on top of that and intermingle with them the complexity of that relationship. It is one of great familiarity and great intimacy, of course. But what the writer is saying is we might mistake that familiarity, we might mistake that sense of intimacy with the ability for us to go in and just begin to think that that means I get to tell God how things should go. That familiarity, what's, what's the cliche? Familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt. Contempt for what? Contempt for the person I'm familiar with. My familiarity makes me think I can just, I can just go in, you know, into a situation and um, I, get to, I get to run the show. I get to tell you how it, how it operates. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is, when you go to the house of God, guard your steps. Be careful. Be careful of one thing, that your posture, that our posture in the presence of God ought to predominantly be one of listening, not speaking. 
Now, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want praise. And that doesn't mean that we go in and we tell him our needs and that we should shortchange our sense of what, we, what, what our concerns are and how we, how we can be open and vulnerable and how we can be loving and praiseworthy. That's not what, that's not what the writer's talking about. The writer is talking about the condition of the heart where I speak before I've had a chance to hear. Think of it this way: um, in the um, in the uh, in, in the life of Jesus, he tells the parable. He tells a very the very one of his most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son. And he has two sons. Um, uh, one son runs off uh, with with his inheritance, wishes his father dead, and runs off and squanders all that. And the other son, the older son, he stayed home. And uh, in the parable, we see the interaction of both sons to the father in the end of the story. And if you think of, if you, if you, if you imagine the story that the younger son comes home and his mouth is full of words. He says, my life is a mess. I've destroyed everything. I have no rights. I have no abilities. I have, I've, I've squandered everything. The only place that I can go is home. And I'm going to go back to my father's house and I'm going to tell him I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm just going to be a servant and I'll earn my keep. And at least I'll get my needs met because I'll earn my keep with my father. And he had a whole speech prepared. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Three-part speech. And he runs back home. And he enters his father's house. And he starts talking. And he says, I'm not, I've sinned against, I've got sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me... And his father says, shh. In that context, that illustration tells us what one of the ways that we tend to go into the house of God, one of the ways that we tend to approach the father is with all kinds of speeches about how we're going to fix the crimes that we've committed. We're going to fix the mistakes I've made. One of the ways that we speak rather than listen is that we go to the God with these speeches. I've messed up my life. I've sinned against you. That's true enough. I've sinned against, I've sinned against people. Yes, that's true. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. Yes, all true. And then, the father, and then he's about ready to say the way he's going to fix it. I've got a, method, I got a method I'm going to fix this, Lord. I'm going to be your servant and I'm going to earn my keep with you now. I'm going to do what's right, and if I do what's right, then I get paid. Quid pro quo relationship. And that's when the father in the story stops him and says, No, you are my son. You are my daughter. And then, he, he, and then the father kisses him, embraces him, and, 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 and gets the garments that would reflect that he is... His son kills the fattened calf and has a party celebrating his coming home. He says, what he's trying to say is, you, you and I, or the parable is trying to say, that you and I have a tendency to want to fix our problem with God by doing more and more better things, by going to a quid pro quo servant relationship rather than operating with him like a son or a daughter. 
Worship is the place where God reminds you and me that we are his children, even though we shouldn't be. We, worship is one of the places where you and I come, we, we might want to come in, in God's face, the house of God. We come to the house of God and we want to, and we want to posture, Lord, I've done, I've done horrible things, but I can do better. I can get it right the next time. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. I've got it all worked out. I've got everything and now you know why the and now and now you see why the writer of Hebrew or the writer of Ecclesiastes says, "Careful, careful about your vows. Don't make promises. Don't talk wishful thinking with God. That's not what the relationship is about. Listen. God doesn't want foolish vows. God doesn't want you." speaking and solving your own problems and telling him how you're going to make it right. He wants you to listen so that he can tell you how he's made it right. How he's making you his child and reminding you that it is his grace that makes you makes it possible for you to enter into this experience. That all of your life is a gracious gift of God and that he is the one that's monitoring it and bringing it to bear. So like the younger son, and there's a sense where the younger son, he was coming, he, was, he, he bowed down before his father, he came worshiping, he came with a sense of, with a sense of self, self-awareness, he came confessing all good things, and worship ought to be all of those experiences. But then he started, then he started talking. And telling God how it should go. You and I, we, we do the same thing. We come into worship and we think we should tell God how it should go. Or, or, if, or, if, there's, or if God's not here, I, I, you know, if God's not sort of immediately present, I'll, I'll tell you how it should go. The other thing that we see when we speak is... Um, the older brother, not that we should uh, in that parable, the, the older brother, we see an interaction with him and the father. And the father, the, the older brother, word gets to the older brother, or the word gets to the father, the older brother's outside. And he hears all this celebration. And he sees all these, he's, he, he's seeing uh, all of these preparations being made. And, word, uh, and, the, and the servant says to the older brother, your brother's, your brother's home. He's been found. He was lost and now he's found. The father is... is uh, the father is uh, throwing a party for your brother and he's killed the fattened calf. And so now the father and the older brother have an interaction. And there's a, se- there's a sense where in that the, fa- the, the, o- the older brother is displaying this same idea that the, Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, listen when you come to your father. Listen. But the older brother says... The father says, well, well, come on in. And the older brother says, I've got a few things to say. I've been here this whole time. I've been here this whole time. I didn't run off like he ran off. 
And now this son of yours, now this son of yours, he disowns his brother in that. He disowns his brother in that sentence. This son of yours who squandered your money, who squandered his, your wealth on frivolous living, he comes back and you, and, you, and you offer the fatted calf to him and for him. And I've been here, I've slaved for you all this time and not once did you even give me a small goat in order to celebrate. This is the other way that we start talking in worship. When we come to the house of God, we come talking before we come listening and we start telling God all the things we, that he owes us because of all the things we did. I did this, therefore you owe me. I've been slaving away. I've been doing it right. I've been working hard. I didn't do what he did. I didn't do what he did. I'm better than him. This the other the other part of that part, the other part that kind of adds another little nuance to the to the story and why this might be a little bit more difficult for the older brother is that you recall at the beginning of the story the younger brother said, "Give me my inheritance, and I'm out of here." So the father divided up his estate between his sons. And he gave the younger son his portion, and he gave the older son his portion, and off they went. The younger brother squandered his. So now he comes back home, and they're killing fattened calves for the party. Whose fattened calf is that? Talking about personal property. It's the older brother's. So now the older brother's resources are being used to celebrate a younger brother he has a problem with. He doesn't want him here. He's, he's fine, we're fine without him. And when you see the attitude of the older brother, you wonder, makes sense that the younger brother left. Who wants to be around that kind of personality? But he goes to his father talking, I've done this. He doesn't deserve that. Look at what he did. Why are we celebrating when someone that doesn't deserve to be celebrated? All of that. This is the other way we come into the presence of God. Complaining spirit. Complaining about what I don't have, what I don't get, what they get and I don't get to get. That somehow, and in those complaints, we are making judgments of God's sovereignty. We're making judgments of God's graciousness. We're saying, I should, be, I should have more, he should have less. We're putting ourselves over God and determining in that setting what we think is right, regardless of what the owner of the house believes. God's been very clear throughout scriptures. It, you know, he, he owns all of it, and if he wishes, if he wishes to have to give more to some and less to others, that is of his own prerogative. And the only way that we get that, the only way that that makes sense is if we come to worship, if we come to a relationship with him through, through a posture of 
Listening rather than speaking. Listening, receiving, hearing him say. And here's the gracious thing he says to, the, to this complaining, you owe me, I've worked hard, I've done it. Look at that miserable sinner that you've brought in here. He doesn't deserve, he's not my brother. You might call him your son. He's no brother of mine. The father's response when he finally stops talking and the father can get a word in, what's the father say to him? Ah, my son, everything I have is yours and it always has been. You've been my son just like he is my son. And everything I have is his. And everything I have is yours. And all you had to do was ask for the party he wanted. You've been, you've been acting like a slave, but you've actually been my son. <gasps> you could have acted like a son any day of the week. And he comes in. The younger brother comes in and is my son acting like a slave, wanting to be. He wants to be a slave, but he's my son. You live like, you live like a slave, but you're my son. The father responds to his words, 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 complaints, wishful thinkings. I'm going to get it better. Vows of, vows of getting it better. The father comes out and says, if you'll just listen, I'll remind you who you are. You shouldn't be, but you're my child. But I, I love you and I favor you and I'm doing something in you and I'm giving you all of my resources. Everything I have is yours. Paul says in Romans, how will he who did not spare his own son not give us all things? Along with him, give us all things. And if you're not and part of, I think, what the writer is trying to get across is if we come to worship listening rather than speaking, rather than demanding, rather than judging and manipulating and assessing, we can hear this finally. We can hear. And when we hear who we are and when we hear what he's done for us and when we hear when we hear what he's going to do and how he's going to provide, even under the sun, it helps us live here better. It helps us live here more satisfyingly. It helps us live here in a, more, in a, in a deeper sense of enrichment and, and gratitude. But the writer says, Solomon says, your tendency is going to want to be to talk. Your tendency is going to want to be to have a lot of words and to think you know and to, and, and, and he says, guard, guard your steps, guard, guard your tongue, careful that you've got too many things that you think you know better than God, better than, and how his life should run, how his world should operate who he should love and who he shouldn't, how he should treat certain people and how he shouldn't treat them, what, you, what I think I should have to do in order to earn his good grace or his celebration. Either way, 
We're going in with all these words, words, all these ideas, all these attitudes, all these, all these uh, uh, concepts about how I should find my connection with him. And the writer says, the connection that we have with God, number one, you shouldn't have one. You shouldn't be allowed in there. And when you go, be careful. Know your place, but also listen. Listen and hear him tell you gracious things. Hear him tell you that you don't know. You don't know what you need to do. I'm going to do for you what you can't do. You think you've done it all. You think you've kept it. You, you think you've served well. It, our relationship was never about you serving and, 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 and earning my relationship with you. Your, our relationship's only ever been about me loving you like a son or a daughter and giving you graciously out of the wealth of what I have for you, even to the point where I'm willing to give my whole life for you, and then all things beyond that. Worship is the place where that's supposed to be reminded. It's supposed to be stirred up within us. We forget more than... More than we <laughs> one, one theologian says that, we, that it's often that we need to be, rem, be reminded of what we don't know rather than be told what we told to do something new. We, we need to be reminded of these ideas as we listen. Not with wishful thinking, not with empty promises, not with all kinds of dreamy words. It's all, it's all meaningless. Just listen and let him tell you how much he loves you. And be awestruck. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the grace that you give us. And Father, forgive us for speaking too much when we should be listening. Forgive us for, for judging and complaining more than, we should, more than uh, yielding in humility to what you have for us. Father, I pray that you would, that you would uh, forgive us, Lord. Lift us up by your grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.